0: Um, I, many years ago I was at a dinner. I was keen. and was, I took the invitation to be a keynote at this event in Gothenburg so I could meet the AP six pension fund people. And we were in the like old stock exchange building. And this person that I was randomly sat next to pitched me this idea of making a meal kit at, you know, it's kind of like Marks and Spencer's or even El Elcorting glaze. You can get your, you know, kind of meal kits in the store, but have it mailed to you. And I remember thinking, my God, that's a really good idea. I think this will work. And then all of a sudden it became a kind of crowded category of overfunded people. And it looked like really questionable if the CAC to LTV ratios were ever going to break into you know, profitable payback periods or just basically attract a venture capitalist like me to invest in. <clears throat> I'm curious to hear if you pull the curtain back, what did you guys learn about the Blue Apron story? Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and today I'm with the co-authors of a new book that I actually find interesting, so I was quite pleased to get a free copy. Catalina, Catalina Daniels and James H. Sherman are the co-authors, and the book is Smart Startups. And I'm an author of three books published in six languages and had McGraw-Hill as my initial publisher and my good and negative experiences there so i know a little bit about writing a book and like my book's actually all, had interviews with a lot of people um like i was telling stories i saying this is how this guy got through that and i used to be more humorous and entertaining before you got canceled for making a good joke and uh, people said you should write a book and so that's why i did it but um so these guys have 18 interviews with i think they should drop the whole hbs thing but 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 the better than actually going to hbs is reading is getting stories of someone's experience collapsed into a couple of pages. So you actually have like 18 stories. And I looked through the list of, I haven't read it yet, but I will. And I, I, uh, I looked at the list of who they've interviewed and it's like raised 140 million, exited IPO, raised 5 million, exited, raised under a million, sold the business. So there's a number of stories of people that appear to have raised angel and venture capital funding and managed to crystallize a proper exit through iPO and m a and so believe me there's lessons learned, even at my age, I thought the less the learning should stop and it keeps going so um I think it's quite interesting, so I want to dive into it so Catalina James, welcome and uh, nice to meet you Nice to meet, nice you, to meet you, you as me
1: well
0: me so um why don't why don't you begin by explaining um what motivated you to write this book? You're both entrepreneurs yourselves um, why did you stop your busy life as an entrepreneur to write this book?
2: Well, I think Andrew, the rationale for writing the book uh, really stems from the fact that both Catalina and I have been entrepreneurs. Uh, I myself have launched uh, and exited a couple different businesses, Uh, but we wanted to really interview other harvard business school founders of companies and learn from them their collective wisdom and what they may have learned the hard way because we ourselves felt that business school training was very different from learning on the job and so we wanted to share with people what people felt maybe either wasn't taught in business school or maybe emphasized enough uh, or what maybe people didn't appreciate uh, sufficiently while in school and, and bring forward the real life stories of entrepreneurs from having started a business, grown it. And then, uh, in many cases, exiting the business and then underpinning, this is the background point that the fact is that over 70% of companies are going to fail, uh, of companies are actually going to fail. And then of that only 10% have any measure of success and it's less than 1% that become unicorns. So the purpose of writing the book is to really help people improve the odds of success, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I get it, that's cool. So why don't we, you know, with all these interviews with people that have really been there, done that, um, I'm sure there are some true lessons that are not, you know, things that you don't learn in a classroom or MBA program. So why don't we kind of chronologically go through some of the things that you touch on in the book. Um, The light bulb moment. and ideation and the triangle of opportunity. Maybe you guys can uh, give us the cliff notes on that.
1: Yeah, let me start by uh, the ideation process. So uh, just maybe backing off a second, but the way we uh, started every single interview with these entrepreneurs was to ask them, what is it that you wish you would have known? that somebody would have told you that that you didn't know okay and all of the interviews and 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 what we talk about in the book is about the answers they gave us the ideation process was um was a surprise to us so we we went through the 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 notion of how did you land your idea and and what makes a good idea and it was a surprise to us because about half the entrepreneur we talked to went through a deliberate ideation process. That means that they knew they wanted to start a business, but they didn't have an idea to start with. And they embarked on a process that lasted weeks or even months to land an idea, a very deliberate process. Not linear, but deliberate. And I think it was Josh Hakes from Plated who said, you know, anybody would tell you that uh, they would go through a linear process landing an idea. I would throw them out room because it's never linear but it was deliberate and josh uh, to name him as an example spent six months developing the idea for plated the milk company six months together with his co-founder uh, in a deliberate process the other half went through a, an organic process and that's you know a, a process where you start with an idea but you need time time to develop the idea to something worth a business. You need to reflect back on your own experiences, the experiences of your family or friends or whatever, and connect the dots. And sometimes it takes years, like you know, in the case of Rubicon MD, it took years to basically land the idea. So it was a bit of surprise to us to hear that all of them took a long time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy uh, to land their idea. Uh, The key to this is what we call, we have one chapter called that way, there is no aha moment. Uh, There is this myth that as an entrepreneur, you're gonna get up one day and uh, know what you're gonna be doing, land an idea just like that, implement it, go off, be successful. None of the entrepreneurs we talked to went through such a process. They all needed time and energy to develop their idea. Jim, maybe you can talk about the ideation triangle and what they told us all to be a good idea.
2: Uh, absolutely, uh, the ideation triangle is sort of our sort of uh, point of reference and how people went about evaluating whether they thought they had a good idea or not. And the first thing that they really went through was evaluating: is it a large opportunity, and drawing distinction between large market. Because what is a large market may not mean that it's a large opportunity, the opportunity is a function really of what problem or solution, what solution you're bringing to a problem. So hopefully it is a large market and you are bringing a very powerful solution to a pain point in that market. So that's a very important point in the ideation triangle that you are going after what is a large opportunity and not merely believing that it's a large market and therefore by definition is a great opportunity. Second, uh, really it comes down to having relevant skills and that's different than industry ex- uh, expertise. And this is a very interesting point that's something that did surprise us. Uh, the founders in almost all cases did not have industry expertise. So it, you know, the in the case of Rent the Runway, neither Jenny or Jen, came from the fashion industry. Uh, Actually, one of the better examples even is uh, uh, in Dormy's case, uh, Herman Morgan Wake, uh, uh, an international student, he came from France, uh, uh, a man, uh, and he didn't have any experience in uh, women's lingerie. And yet he launched a company that was uh, designed to produce a better quality product for women. But he made the very important point that you need to understand your customer, you don't have to be your customer, but you need to be able to understand that person. Uh, Very interesting in our uh, in our research is that people that come from an industry are perhaps the least likely to disrupt it. So back on, on the case of Rent the Runway, when they met with Diane von Furstenberg, she actually was not very positive on the opportunity. So it's it's really an example of someone coming from within the industry who may not actually see the opportunities that might exist. And then finally, third, the the other point of the triangle is having passion for that opportunity. You obviously need passion for whatever it is you're doing, because it's the passion that's going to that will carry you through the very difficult and challenging times, uh, which are made up of really a a roller coaster experience in in doing a startup. So these three points of the triangle triangle are absolutely critical to uh, to check off uh, in determining whether or not to move forward.
0: I mean, all these topics I have such strong opinions on, we could just get siloed in one of them and never move on. But um, um, I'd like to, you know, hear what you learned on teams. So a lot of people talk about a balanced team and, you know, three different type archetypes you need, but what was your learnings and and what did you crystallize into your book? Interesting that you talk.
1: Talk about the three archetypes. Uh, we went into this as well with the notion of there is a myth. You need two or three people on your team: the CEO, the CTO, and probably the CMO or COO, depending on the venture. As angel investors, that's really what you hear, and, and you know what VCs say, etc. What we learned is it doesn't hold that way, and you know any team can work depending on who you are and how you like to work and where you get your energy from. So we had teams that were, well, I mean, five people recruited by a headhunter uh, in the case of Guild, um, multiple founders um, with co-founders, junior founders. Um, we had solo founders. We had a mom and uh, her son. We had best friends. So we had multiple teams and multiple startups that became extremely successful that did not take the box of the archetypes you were talking about. Um, So we learned that the most important thing is to find a team that works for you. Uh, And I think the first question is, could you go solo or not? If you're a first time founder, you probably don't wanna go solo. Uh, You probably want to have somebody else, uh, ideally somebody who's been there, done that, uh, but you want to go with somebody else. If you go with somebody else, the most important thing is shared values. You need to be able to say, we are in this together. Uh, this is what we aspire to do, this is why we do it, this is when we're going to be exiting, and so forth, and you need to have these discussions early on. You don't want to wait until a buyer comes along or whatever, so shared values is absolutely critical in the case of a co-founder. Besides that, uh, you want to make sure that you've got the right skills on board, but you don't need to make people co-founders. You can hire them if you've got the money and the capital. So um, in a nutshell, uh, you know, these archetypes and those myths, they don't hold. Uh, We saw all kinds of models and um, you should follow the path that works for you more than follow, you know, some kind of myth.
0: You know, I'm curious to hear what you learned in the Blue Apron, case study. Um I, many years ago, I was at a dinner. I was keen, I was I took the invitation to be a keynote at this event in Gothenburg, so I could meet the a p six pension fund people. And we were in the like old stock exchange building, and this person that I was randomly sat next to pitched me this idea of making a meal kit at you know, it's kind of like marks and Spencer's or even Elcorton Glaze. You can get your you know kind of meal kits in the store, but have it mailed to you. And I remember thinking, my God, that's a really good idea. I think this will work. And then all of a sudden it became a kind of crowded category of overfunded people. And it looked like really questionable if the CAC to LTV ratios were ever going to break into you know, profitable payback periods or just basically attract a venture capitalist like me to invest in. <clears throat> I'm curious to hear if you pull the curtain back, what did you guys learn about the Blue Apron story?
2: Um, well, in the case of Blue Apron, uh, you know, let's rewind a little bit because when Matt Salzberg began the company, he, when he was coming up with this idea, wanted to look at industry change that was, uh, was, was occurring. He liked to look at major changes that would be affecting particular industries. And he, when he looked at the internet and how it was disintermediating, disintermediating many different categories for e-commerce, the one category it had not affected in a great way was actually buying uh food, buying fresh ingredients uh, for food. So the grocery category was not something that had been affected. These were of course the days before Instacart, before Amazon bought Whole Foods. So back then it just wasn't as common. And he had the vision, he's a visionary in believing that this at some point was going to change. So, you know, he really used his passion and his network of connections, frankly, from the VC world, because he had worked in venture capital, and that was very helpful okay. for raising. Where had he worked a before? Fair of money to, uh, uh, Bessemer Ventures. Bessemer. So okay. He was he was with Bessemer Ventures, and his first uh, angel investor check was, uh, I believe, from one of his colleagues there, uh, who basically wrote him a check and believed in him and didn't didn't care what the idea was. He just believed that Matt would be successful, and so he you know he got this off the ground. And in the case of Blue Apron. He understood that to be successful in the category, one would have to raise a great deal of money because it would require building warehouses. Uh, The category would become competitive and he wanted to make sure that, that he would have the resources and the network to be successful in raising a lot of money. And actually he did raise $200 million for the business and the later stage investors that came in at quite lofty valuations. We actually go into some detail in the book, uh, contrasting Blue Apron and their financing strategy versus Plated. Plated, which is another meal kit company, Josh Hicks was very clear that they chose a bit more of a conservative financing strategy. They raised about $50 million at more moderate valuations because they wanted to maintain exit optionality. In other words, they wanted to have the opportunity to exit for a lower price if they were not to uh, to to go public whereas in matt's case for blue apron he had one vision alone and that was that the brand would live on forever and that meant for him that they wanted to go public and he wanted that brand to carry on forever so he can i ask where
0: uh, sometimes these things get a little geographical where where was plated where was the ceo plated physically living what city and where was uh blue apron do you know
2: uh, they're both uh, based or uh, were based in New York.
0: Both New York based. Yeah. Cause I mean, the key thing for anyone listening to this is that um, sometimes the company's sales takes off and investors are excited and there's an option to raise 10 million on 40. So raise 10 million on a pre-money valuation of 40. And so with a post money valuation of 50, you might be able to sell the company in an MNA transaction for $200 million. And, That would provide, you know, like a 4X for these guys. And when you're sitting on a billion dollar fund, if you 2X the fund, that's 200 million of carry. They're okay to write a large check and seek to make a 4X to balance a fund somewhere in a one and a half to 2X. You know, for smaller funds like us, you know, we're looking for 10Xing the whole fund net of management fees. Whereas if you, if you, or some big fund comes along with too much money and says, I'm gonna put in 100 million on a 900 million value million pre-money valuation and anoint you as the latest unicorn. Well, now you've got to sell the company for $4 billion to meet this little Forex kind of hurdle. And if you sit down with M&A sell-side bankers of what's the list of companies you would go to to sell this business to around a 200 million target? It's a big list. What's the list of companies that'll buy this for a billion? You're like like, we have to go public. There's no one gonna buy this thing. Like, that's not even worth a billion, you know, and and, and so, it's, so that's overfunding is a challenge. What what did, what other overfunding issues? It seems like overfunding is a pitfall that's explored in this book.
2: Uh, yeah, no, there's no doubt that uh, we have, uh, where we talk about it as death by overfunding, basically, and, in some cases the entrepreneur is willing to take that risk and shoot for the moon and that's it in other in in other words in ipo they want to be a unicorn and that's the only exit that in terms of how they define success in the in the case of other entrepreneurs they wanted to have that exit optionality that i spoke about before and they wanted to therefore be a little more conservative in how they went about their financing strategy and in fact The last chapter of the book and the last section of the book where we talk about how you need to target the exit that's right for you. And you need to start that on day one, which sounds uh, unusual right it's it doesn't seem like you'd want to be thinking about your exit from the very beginnings of the company. But the fact is, you need to think about what exit do you want, what do you want personally and how much risk are you willing to tolerate because that's going to have a very large impact on your financing strategy and it will impact your growth strategy, it will also be an important factor in how uh, are you or are you not aligned with your investors, your investors are going to want to know that as well. Uh, and so some investors want you to shoot for the moon and want you to be uh, uh, want you to go for being a public company. Other investors, as you said earlier, uh, may be comfortable with a lesser exit. So I think there's a spectrum. And I think it's a very much a personal uh, it's a personal choice that, and it's, as Catalina said earlier, the founding team has to be aligned on this as well. Their values and their vision, uh, needs to be aligned. That's very, very important. Otherwise you're going to have problems.
0: I think there's uh, an individual founder might make more cash, absolute cash in an exit. If they raise less money and they sold at a smaller amount. If they own seventy percent of the business and they sell at a hundred million, and they had only raised a million and a half of funding, you know they're looking at a seventy million dollar payout, right? Whereas if they just went on for nine years and went through a series, you know, ABCDEFGHIQ, you know, kind of funding rounds, um, the liquidation stack that they have to pay back, you know, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and. You know, I've seen companies raise 500 million and get sold for 500 million. And there was basically a management incentive of 10% of that to get the founders to even go along with it, you know, and there's a lot of conflicts too. VC might want to put points on the board ahead of their next fundraise. There's a lot of complexities and getting that right for the individual, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, in the case of guilt, we also talk about that one where the founders raised about 280 something million dollars for that business, and it was sold for about 250 million. You know, so it's it's they it's raised 280, sold
0: it, sold for less. So, so was there? yeah, I mean, exactly, people call it a, exactly. like lawyers call it a management incentive plan, and we refer to this as a carve out. Um, like sometimes, if there's no if there's no carve out. If the business, like on a discounted cash flow basis or a comparable basis, is looking unlikely to exit for an amount equal to or above the liquidation stack of how much money they have to pay back to the investors, theoretically from an exit, the founder won't even tell the VC that there was an opportunity to sell the business because they know they're going to make nothing. Whereas if they know they've got a carve out, um, you might at least get the phone call and see that you had an option to, someone wants to buy this company for less than the amount we put into it. But, you know, the way this is going, I think we should all take it. Was there a carve out in that for the founders?
2: Uh, to be to be honest, we didn't get into those kinds of details in terms of these okay. transactions. Uh, probably that would be another book. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think that uh, uh, we had to also acknowledge that some of that is getting into confidential uh, kinds of discussions that they may sure. not have been comfortable discussing with us. Uh, and we did have, frankly, we did have some discussions that were off the record that we could not publish, uh, right. to be frank, um, sure. uh, but we, you know, we, we tried to outline just what are some of those major factors for an entrepreneur to be thinking about. And that, and we do say, you know, emphatically that you need to start thinking about what is the exit that's right for you and think about that early on, and you have to always be prepared because uh, you don't know exactly when the exit's gonna come. There are a lot of uncontrollables in the business that are going to force your hand. And and the best you can do is try to be pre- uh, as prepared as possible.
0: Yeah, I think that um, certain financings will limit your exit options. That is, that that's something people need to understand. And I think that when founders are born coming out of their mommy's womb, they think the more I raise the better. And that's not necessarily true. Um, that, that you know, these things play out and it's irreversible and you you can't reverse time and go back and do it differently. So I think it's valuable for readers to s- see these case studies of, of how these things played out. You talk one of the points about getting the first customer and maybe that sounds obvious, but if you decided that it was good enough to keep it in a book that you can't let get beyond a certain number of pages, what was the insight of um, getting to first customers?
1: I think, the well, I mean, a couple of insights linked to getting the first customer. Um, and maybe it sounds obvious, but uh, w- one of the insights was go as far as you can without outside money. Uh, so do go it as far as you can with without what? External money. Uh, just oh, okay, okay. bootstrap, as, okay? bootstrap as far as you can. Um, Bootstrap, bootstrap as as far as you can. Um, But, you know, what was interesting was that it was really taken to the extreme by some of these entrepreneurs, uh, where uh, Justin Joff, for example, from Henry the Dentist, who happened to have money on his bank account, said, uh, you know, I would bootstrap as if I had no money, because I wanted uh, to basically focus on what mattered, not spend the money, be creative, and and just uh, you know, get going without spending the money. Um, we learned that focusing only on the front end and not the back end is really what you want to do. Um, and focusing on the front end is is just, you know, a minimum viable product, but even beyond that, the illusion thereof, Uh, you know, just putting in front of the customers something that allows the customer to perceive the product that you're gonna be selling and give you feedback about what that product, uh, you know, basically represents to them. Would they be willing to buy it, yes or no? Um, and, and uh, you know, at, at the price that you're putting forward. But so we have the example of, of Yumbo Kids. Uh, this is a, a company that makes meals for kids, not a meal kit company. They just make meals for kids uh, so that parents don't need to worry about that. They started off with uh, just a post on a Facebook uh, group for mummies. Uh, about their offering uh, to see what the reactions would be. They had uh, no industrial kitchen. They had no logistics. They they had nothing. They just wanted to see when their product was, quote unquote, out there, um, you know, if if parents would react and actually buy it. Um, And to their surprise, there was extremely positive reaction that's the second thing we we learned from um on on this front you don't want to take just okay feedback the feedback of customers should be overwhelmingly positive okay and so in the case of yumbo kids um they had overwhelmingly positive feedback they started uh, making the first meals in their kitchen, delivering them themselves. Joanna, one of the founders, delivering the, the kids, uh, the, the the meals herself and getting tips for that. OK, um, so you want to bootstrap as much as you can until you find the fit, until you get feedback that is overwhelmingly positive, not just okay positive, overwhelmingly positive.
2: And if I can just add one one other thing on that one, Catalina and Andrew, uh, we have a great story where we talk about from, from Rent the Runway, another example of how to get going on the cheap and to demonstrate uh, product appeal was when they actually ran pop-up racks of dresses of women's clothing on college campuses. I thought this was really so innovative. What they wanted to demonstrate was that women wanted to rent, would be willing to rent designer dresses. They So before even having a website, before building out any supply chain, before handling anything with logistics, they literally just set up some racks of clothing of designer dresses on five or six college campuses, and then they videotaped it to see how much, how passionate their customers were in being able to rent these dresses for a special occasion. So it was a way of really uh, not just validating that there was strong demand, but as Catalina said, that it was overwhelmingly positive uh, customer response. And then they actually were able to use the videotapes to show to venture capitalists to, to, which were made up mainly of men, uh, to to convey to them just how strong the uh, customer demand Uh, would be for their product. It was really fascinating.
1: And this touches on another point, that is every first sale is basically a hurdle or entails hurdles. And in the case of Rent a Runway, they really understood um, what, what the hurdles would be. They needed to be convinced themselves that women would be willing to rent a dress instead of owning it. Intellectually, it's one thing to kind of develop that idea, but uh, in practice, they could basically, really, with their pop ups, um, uh, you know, convince themselves and their investors that people would go over that hurdle of not owning a dress, but renting it.
0: Right. So it it can be important to, you know, even prove the negative thesis that you believe they would rent it, and then you find out that they don't. Um, so you could iterate into something else. Um, I mean, when Eric Reese wrote The Lean Startup, a lot of people you know, were adopting this idea that everyone is gonna be pivoting. And even what you measure, uh, people may say, I'm willing to use your system or your product service offering, and then in the end, they stick with somebody else or don't come through you guys spoke to a lot of founders and case studies. What did you come up with um, measuring when to pivot or when to iterate or when to change, um, you know, away from an initial thesis that the startup is working on?
2: I think in terms of pivot, one of the things that, that concept is that it's really along a spectrum, right? You're gonna pivot at any point where you sense weakness or opportunity either. So what we discovered with our interviews was, it's not at all uncommon that you're going to pivot. Let's say you got to product market fit and you're scaling up the business. One has to anticipate or fail, basically. You have to anticipate that conditions are going to change. And what may have worked in getting you to a certain point, uh, to that point of product market fit, may or may not work in continuing to grow the business. So we talk about pivots that are quite common in that scaling up phase uh, so the the pivots could be a very significant one in marketing for example ivy which is a membership club for those that wish to engage in lifelong learning uh, you pay a fee to be a member of that club uh, and barry the ceo founder they were using a a lead generation tool to identify excellent prospects on LinkedIn that they had uh, their sales staff reach out to to try to convert to become club members. And it worked for quite a while. Uh, but it worked up until the point it, it didn't. <laughs> so the, the tool basically broke at some point. It no longer was functioning, wasn't working for them. And they needed to, to, to engage in a significant pivot in how they handled their marketing strategy. And they really needed to, frankly, dismiss a number of their high paid sales staff and move towards more of a SaaS model where people would be offered free online programs initially, and then they move the pricing into a monthly charge. So this was a, a fairly significant pivot in terms of their marketing strategy and how to scale the business. We also see other pivots that are really about uh, finding your 2.0. So in other words, what may have gotten to, to, to one tier of growth, you need to figure out, well, what's your next tier, where it's going to, where is it going to come from? So Bespoke Post, a company that is engaged in men's e-commerce, they have a yeah, subscription an Box Program.
0: A yeah, buddy of mine an I'm angel on Bespoke Post. as uh, it you know, Josh Siegel, buddy of mine is an angel investor. So I've been hearing about this company for a long time.
2: They're a terrific company. And I myself actually am an angel investor in them. Uh, they're, they're a wonderful uh, group of founders, uh, Steve and Rishi. Uh, they grew They they grew their core business to over 300,000 club members. And by the way, this is from uh, the early days when a lot of VCs did not believe men buy products online outside of tech products. So, you know, this is quite an accomplishment for Bespoke Post. But they are also are going through a bit of a pivot in terms of finding the next 2.0 for them. And that for them, it means launching different satellite brands, different uh different branded products that will get them to the next tier of growth Um, the pivot though that i want to just spend the last 30 seconds on is you can have more extreme pivots and that's when you need to start over so we we did interview folks that needed uh when they were uh, in the early phase and they hadn't gotten to product market fit one has to make that painful decision if it's not working do you need to pivot and start completely over and that may mean a new product in a new industry, that's a much more significant pivot, uh, uh, and and frankly, the the bottom line is this is where your founding team is going to be really essential, because it's you and your team that is going to need to navigate these painful pivots, and if you and and to be successful with them, it, it is very helpful having uh, good teammates to help you.
0: You I don't know if you got into this, but I, I'd be curious to know what Bespoke Post learned on. Uh, the true cost of acquiring a new customer and what actual churn was. It seems like it seems risky that it could be expensive to get to get people to do the box subscription thing, and then after a while they're like, "I'm not inspired by th- this stuff in a box, and I'm okay with what I got already." Um, you know, what, what was the well, pivot they, that they, they made? Short... Or I, I you explained the... it. They, they added whole new branded stuff. Maybe that was yeah, addressing I
2: mean, the churn their issue. Business, uh, they're, they're, it's not as a churn issue, actually. Their core business has been very strong. Uh, their metrics are really excellent. They, uh, Without getting into specifics, they do retain the customer for a very long time. Now, one of the reasons is they have a negative option uh, program with that. So you, ha- you can opt out of a box if you don't want it. You could skip it while you're still being a subscriber to their club. So you so don't automatically yeah, you, their average customer is skipping maybe every other month. So maybe they're getting five or six boxes a year instead of 12. Um, so they built in that negative option, which at the time, quite frankly, was uh, fairly innovative to allow people to skip. Very flexible subscription option. So this is what, um, you know, they've had very favorable lifetime uh, lifetime value economics uh, in the business. Uh, what they discovered uh, is that, having gotten to well over a hundred million dollars of revenue in this core business to get to the next level of growth. Well, the core subscription business was beginning to peak and they began to hit certain limits there. So that's why they began to, uh, a brand strategy of launching what they call satellite brands, uh, uh, two or three different satellite brands where they are designing manufacturing and then test marketing these products with their very large base of 300,000 plus customers. So that's how they're uh, pivoting, if you will. But it's really uh, uh, a strategy to get them to that that 2.0 level of growth.
0: I mean, it sounds like an evolution of size to be able to kind of like Costco has its Kirkland brands because they're that big. Um, and that that might be good on on margins as well. So you seem to have like 18 case studies where they seem like most of them, if not all of them, has raised some amount of capital, and then a bunch of them had raised, you know, trainloads of venture capital funding. What are some like lessons learned, or even actionable advice that your readers could follow? That um, are, are learnings from these people that you know seem like they were rather successful in raising venture capital funding.
2: Well, I think that when we look at financing, and, and Catalina, jump, jump in here, um, but in terms of financing, I think one of the lessons learned is you need to start early and get to know investors well before, potential investors well before you're seeking the money if you can. So networking and getting warm introductions to people is very, very important because it, it takes time to build a relationship and to build trust. So the networking, the warm introductions, uh, how you communicate with investors is very important. Everything from your initial email outreach to sending a pitch deck. Uh, we had uh, a number of folks. Actually, it was the founder of Rubicon MD who said it's always advisable to seek seek advice from someone, not money. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, and when you yeah. seek. When you seek money, maybe you're probably gonna get advice, but if you seek advice uh, later, you're more likely to get money. So, you know, think think about that in terms of uh, how you're communicating with people. Uh, and then also of course, is the proof points. All investors are going to want to understand what do you have that can demonstrate proof of your idea. And uh, now there's a spectrum of ways in which you can try to do that. Uh, but that's what ultimately they're going to be looking for. So you have to get investors at the end of the day to believe in you. And that's a process. It's very, very important. The other thing we'd say is that um, you need to do your own homework on what investors to approach. Uh, Otherwise, you could be spinning your wheels. Uh, A lot of times we, we had learned from the founders that uh very and actually it was Justin Yaffe of Henry the Dentist who says it in a very colorful way and he said he met with dozens and dozens maybe a hundred different potential uh, investors and either it was the wrong check size or or he was the wrong stage of development or his business model didn't fit their their preferences uh or he was in the wrong city or you know uh or his uh margins weren't good enough or he didn't have a moat uh to protect their the asset you know, any number of objections. And so uh, he's, he cautioned people to really spend the time to identify the right potential investors for you, which are hard, it may be harder to do, but it'll be easier to land, easier to land the right investor for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I kind of call that stage geography sector. You know, if you're a drug discovery, healthcare life science company, don't go after the e-commerce SaaS, VC. Um, I found it a little frustrating when I was a founder and I ultimately raised over $300 million of VC funding, but it's it can be very frustrating that you go to a VC and say, Hey, would you like to invest in my business? And they say, you're too early stage. Come back when you've got more revenue, more customers. And then you come back and say, okay, I've got more revenue, more customers. Do you want to invest in my company now? And they say more, come back when you have more uh, revenue and customers. Then I come back and they go, you're too late stage. The multiple won't satisfy My company i'm like what you know how can i get goldilocks perfect with you and so the answer to me is that you know you're a moving target some of these guys you know remain true to a pre-revenue pre-seed pre-product strategy or something but they might evolve as well so you know more communication is probably good and talking to founders that are successfully raising that can make introductions and give you this advice rather than funding can be very very valuable i think at the end of the day a target investor list being populated by someone who was an angel and bespoke pokes and knows people in the New York scene that can guide you and uh, make sure that you're not reaching out, you know, wasting time. Um, How about, how about negotiating fundraising? Was there, is there advice in the book that digs into, you know, specific terms on a term sheet or advice of what to push for, what not to, or how to get your deal done, or how to create a sense of urgency and make them stop You know, waiting on the fence and get off the fence.
2: I mean, again, I guess I in that in that regard, in terms of the process, we don't get into the very specifics of a term sheet, although we do discuss, you know, what a participating preferred stock is and why you may want to avoid that, you know, liquidation preferences, things like this. We do touch on that at a high level. Um, But, you know, we talk about the importance of of building momentum obviously and 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 whether it makes sense to hire a banker which especially for a first time founder can be very helpful uh if you're able to bring on board a banker to help you with your fundraise obviously not so much not in the earliest of stages but in the growth rounds uh but in terms of creating a that momentum and uh building a competitive process it's very much in your interest to try to what we, what we call set the dominoes, basically. So setting the dominoes where, where you are able to have leverage is going to mean, okay, do you have a company that is growing very rapidly? You know, are your metrics compelling? And then that combined with the perception of the industry, does the industry have momentum? Those of course are the two most important factors that are going to determine whether you have leverage or not. And the other thing is finally, and and we talked about this with Bespoke Post. If you can bring on board a name investor as a lead investor, then all the others will come running. I mean, this yeah. notion of FOMO, a <laughs> fear of missing out, is real. That definitely is real. And in the case of Bespoke Post, it's funny because you mentioned earlier about in your experience, uh, uh, a VC that said, come back later when you've grown. And then when you have grew, and then you went back to them, and then they didn't want to still invest. And they said, come back again later. Same thing happened with bespoke post when with an early uh, at the early stage, a, a VC said, well, we'd like to see you when you hit X. Well, when they hit X, then they went back and then well they were still on the fence. And then finally, you know, we talk about how you, you have to have your antenna up, you need to have your own senses as to, well, if you don't think someone can pull the trigger, then yes, you need to move on. And in their case with Bespoke Post, they got 500 startups to invest in their early round. And once 500 startups came in with a brand name, everybody else followed. So mm-hmm. the the fear of missing out uh, is real. And, you know, you it, it behooves you to try to build that kind of momentum. And, you know, the the herd mentality is something that is valid and and you should try to you know you try to steer to that as best you can.
0: Yeah, I think that um, participating preferred liquidation preferences are coming back into fashion um, these days after, you know, such a bull run of, you know, limitless founder friendly terms, um, you know, coming. Um, and they stuff can get we already talked about carve up so you can rip that up at some point if, if it's necessary. Um, so why don't we close out on talking about the exit? Um, you got a bunch of IPOs in there. You've got a couple of M&As. Every M&A transaction feels unique to me. Um, and it's too late to be learning things at some point in your life. So if we could learn from actual exits that are discussed in the book, that sounds compelling. Um, what, what are some actual stories for, with like the name of a company that you were able to disclose um, that has some learnings?
2: Well, I mean, in terms of the exits, uh, we, you know, we do talk about how um, uh, well, we contrast actually how SkyMD exited when they were sold a dermatology app versus let's say plated when they exited and plated the meal kit company, which was sold to Albertsons, a big grocery chain. So one of the learnings uh, that we would underline is to take small steps towards an exit early on. And what we mean by that is, even shortly after you get the business going, you should always spend every quarter, uh, You know, talk to a banker, talk to your industry partners, talk to your suppliers, even talk to some competitors, build ties, network in your industry, because you never know down the road when you may need to do a transaction. And it takes time to build a relationship with, with parties. So in the case of Plated, uh they needed to seek an exit shortly after when blue apron went public and and a bit stumbled with the ipo somewhat and they stumbled largely because amazon bought whole foods which tarnished uh the meal kit industry so it caused some ripple effects with blue apron and their ipo then that experience uh, rippled through to Plated, which was that they themselves were going out to raise money. And then they realized that rather than raise around, they should consider an exit. And they were able to ignite discussions with Albertsons, the large grocery chain, only because they already had a relationship that was built up right. from years before. So if you so our, the lesson learned is try to build some business partnership type discussions early on, so you can get a sense of who might want to buy you down the road, you know, who are those players and what might they be looking for. If you contrast that with SkyMD, which we talk about in in the book, the dermatology app, Eric was coming to the end of his runway, the financial runway, and when it came time to seek an exit, he didn't have the contacts, he didn't have the time, he ultimately sold the app to uh, a dermatology customer, a customer uh, that had multiple offices, but the customer knew he only had a couple more weeks of, uh, uh, of, of financial runway, and so he didn't have any leverage. And obviously, leverage is destiny when when trying to uh, uh, seek an exit. So those are, you know, these are, you know, we have a, so we have so, other so the dermatology those, yeah. so, with the, are...
0: so with the so with the dermat. So with the dermatology app, he raised funding, he was burning cash, he had X number of days, weeks, months of runway, and raising more capital was not an option. So he was, he managed to get, get an exit, um, at least better than nothing, but it's hard to negotiate if you don't have a BATNA and a backup.
2: Correct, correct. If you obviously if you have more than one party competing, you're going to get a better deal. Uh, You know, he didn't have that luxury um and so so it was a, a forced exit a fire sale exit but um you know it was an exit at least um, yep. the other thing we, we suggest in the book is the importance of soft testing the market and what we mean by that is you should always be thinking about is it riskier for you to keep going forward to build your business versus seeking an off-ramp today and this is particularly important in the growth stage because maybe you're doing well, maybe you're doing incredibly well, but that doesn't mean you should not think about an exit path that might be attractive today because you always have to balance that with the risks you take and the uncontrollables that can hit you by continuing on. So, for example, again, I'm going to use the the case of bespoke post here. In their series B financing round, they, with their banker, floated the notion that they should go out, raise money, but at the same time, explore whether anybody might be interested in buying them. It's a good opportunity when raising a round of money in a growth round to test the market, soft test the market, and see if there may be parties that may be interested in purchasing you. Or there may be an opportunity for a secondary sale. We talk about that in the book, selling shares on uh, your secondary shares uh, in a transaction. And that, by the way, is what they did. Uh, and that's a it's way to party. exit at least partially. Yes, yes. And that's a right. partial exit, right? I mean, So if, if you're selling a portion of your shares, I did that with my own company. So that's a that you can have a partial exit if you're selling your shares as a secondary transaction but these are the things to think about and I'll never forget you know one of the bankers uh, you know had said that if you have an opportunity of taking such some chips off the table then you should because conditions will always change
0: yeah yeah I mean it depends on the situation for an individual it can be life-changing or if you're turning down an offer to sell the company at 300 million and your VCs want you to go for an IPO at a multi-billion dollar exit, you know, securing you know, your, your parents, yourself, your family might make sense and just sell a little secondary to soldier on for it. I like the advice of uh, talk to a banker. We have a number of, because what could happen is that founder thinks, well, I don't want to sell now. I have no interest in selling now. Um, so I'm too busy to even meet that banker for lunch. And we have a bunch of investment bankers that are primarily sell-side M&A bankers but they do other things as well, but they, they're LPs in our fund. And so I want my founders to take a lunch meeting with them. And what can happen sometimes is that the founder takes a lunch meeting with, um, the VC with the the banker and the banker wants to do deals, but the founder saying I'm not for sale right now. And then the uh, banker now understands what this company does. Hopefully that gets successfully communicated over the lunch. And now, that banker that afternoon is meeting with the head of corporate development of Google or Yahoo or somebody who buys companies like that. And they want something to talk about to Google or else Google loses interest in meeting this guy for lunch. And so all of a sudden, while you thought you were too busy to be meeting a banker, you thought you're too busy, you definitely don't want to sell your company now. Now you're on the radar of Google. At least they know about you, you know, at least they've heard of you. And um, you're building a relationship that might take years to get to an exit, um, you know. And 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 one thing feeds off the other. I think the Instagram story is a really interesting Silicon Valley tale where um, they were feared by uh, Facebook and they were wanted by Twitter, and the VCs knew this. So, like my wife used to wake up on a Sunday morning looking at Facebook of the photos from the barbecue from yesterday. If Twitter bought Instagram, she might switch and be looking at her photos of the barbecue on Twitter. And so you had this dynamic of the company didn't really want to sell. The founders have really just got started. They didn't even have any revenue barely. And if any, if I can remember that right. And then you had investment, you had VCs that said, what? Imagine the devastation to Facebook who just went public at a hundred billion. If they bought them for 1 billion, that's 1% of their market cap, just to deep six it, make it go away. And stop it from falling into the hands of Twitter. So sometimes communicating with people that can get you on the radar of both Twitter and Facebook at the same time, the VCs were ready to plow money and say, you're gonna pay dearly to buy it. And I think at the time it was like a billion dollar exit really fast after the creation of the company.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and I think that it it just behooves you to push yourself out there. And, you know, we talk about forced serendipity in the book. And what we mean by that is, you know, with forced serendipity, whether it's trying to find a co-founder and putting yourself out there to find, you know, the right, the ideal co-founder, it's not going to happen if, unless you get out there and start talking to lots of people. So there's that aspect. Or you want to force serendipity in how you're hiring people. We have heard many stories about that of finding key hires just by talking uh, a great deal at meetups with others uh, in, e- in an effort to bring in. T- talent. Um, Because remember the the CEO, the uh, one of the chief attributes of a CEO is being talented at hiring, being able to attract great talent. But the same applies here with with uh, financing and ultimately exiting, you've got to be really adept at pushing yourself to to network and get out there and take meetings that you may think are not valuable. But later on, they turn to be quite valuable. Uh, because it may not may lead to an opportunity that 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 you hadn't thought about and it, it and to your point, uh, meeting with bankers that start circulating your name in the industry and and that but it behooves you to be uh, part of the conversation that's the that's going to give that's that that's going to reduce the risk that you end up moving forward without uh, uh, having a viable exit. And that, well, that's the biggest, it's no. one of the
0: biggest challenges. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, found, founders are just so busy. It's hard for them to see that they have to make an hour to go to some SVB networking event or something. And so it's important to have some hours carved out for serendipity to possibly you know, get hit by lightning. But uh, make sure you guys send me the link of where people can buy this book on Amazon. Smart startups, 18 case studies with real uh entrepreneurs going through all of this from ideation through to getting mvps out raising funding and crystallizing the exit and um getting into the into uh how secondaries made sense for some folks so thank you so much and best of luck with the book i, ho- I hope uh, a lot of people pick it up
1: thank you thank, thank you
0: thank you okay bye for now nice meeting you bye